Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer, like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Damasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. India is broken, a people betrayed, independence to today is a big new book on India by the author, economist Ashoka Modi. Modi is an economic historian at Princeton School of Public and International Affairs and a longtime official at the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. His new book provides readers with an unvarnished look at India's twin economic and political failures over the past 75 years. Challenging the conventional wisdom, Modi argues that India's post-independence leaders, from Nehru all the way to Narendra Modi, have failed to confront India's true economic problems, seeking easy band-aid solutions instead. As popular frustration has grown with the economy, India's democracy has also suffered, leading to an upsurge in nationalism, violence, and corruption. To talk more about his book and his controversial thesis, Ashoka Modi joins me today from Princeton, New Jersey. Ashoka, congrats on the book and thanks for taking the time. Oh, Milan, thank you very much for having me. So I want to start by asking you a little bit about your own personal journey. Uh, You went to college at IIT Madras. You did a master's at the Center for Development Studies in Trivandrum. You moved to the United States to do a PhD at Boston University, and then you settled into a long, successful career, uh, first at the World Bank and then at the IMF, where you were a senior official working on Europe. In fact, your previous book was a very well-received examination of the European financial crisis. So, you know, I guess my first question to you is tell us why, at this stage in your career, you decided to sort of return your attention once more to India. Thank you very much, Milan. Uh, My attention never really left India. Uh, Through these years that I have lived abroad for 40 years, I've been to India almost every year. My children who were born in the United States have also visited India pretty much every year with us. And I began to feel quite early on... (laughs) that there was an elite narrative of India, an elite that lived pretty much first world lives. And there was the rest of India. And I just felt very uncomfortable with the narrative that India is booming. And then uh, at the risk of embarrassing you, uh, (coughs) when I read your book, When Crime Pays, That was a moment of epiphany for me. And if you remember, I actually came and saw you. And it began to uh, fit together somehow at that moment that if Indian legislatures and the Indian parliament were increasingly being occupied by people with very serious criminal charges, how could they also be making good public policy? 
And how could a society like that not just make policy, but implement and enforce it? And so it began to fit in together that what was really happening was a chronic lack of provision of public goods. Education, health, good working cities, degraded environment, both air and water, and essentially a broken judicial system, especially for the poor and vulnerable. And at the other end, while everybody talked about some very magical GDP growth, the jobs picture was in fact very grim. And the jobs picture was getting worse. Very few people were paying attention to jobs. There were isolated economists like Ajit Ghosh who were doing it. But the popular narrative did not, did not even refer to it. So there were these pieces of puzzle and your book, in a sense, drew me to a hypothesis which became, in a sense, as the central hypothesis as I began to write the book, which is, although I tell the story of post-independence India through the eyes and words of its successive leaders, and as you rightly point out, document their failures, the real story I ended up telling was an erosion of social norms and public accountability. And the reason that becomes so important to my own thinking is that there comes a point in the erosion of norms and accountability when the process falls into what I call a bad equilibrium, where when it's sort of the, the idea that if a lot of people cheat, then it's optimal for you and me to also cheat because I'd rather cheat you before you cheat me. So you then have a society where the instinctive reaction is to, to take the morally incorrect path. And in such a setting, trust and cooperation fail. In such a setting, then politics becomes a business. In such a setting, then, the provision of public goods suffers. And while the elite do very well, thank you, for the vast majority, the lived reality continues to be grim. And we define away that grimness by saying, oh, but we've eliminated the most abject forms of poverty, but we have not eliminated the precariousness of existence that characterizes, I would say, 60-70% of Indians. So that's what, how the book grew up. You have a very simple and elegant uh, thesis, right? Which is seven and a half decades after independence in 1947, uh, as you put it, India's democracy and its economy are broken, right? Those are the words that you use. And, and, and of course, we'll, we'll get into the, the each element of this, but just sort of tell us in a nutshell, you know, why you sort of come out of the gate with such a bleak assessment, because it does fly in the face of the, what, what I would call the bumper sticker version of India, right? Which is not quite India shining of 2004, but 
but something similar. I would go a step further, Milan. I would say, in fact, that today the mood is giddier than the India Shining moment in 2004. Uh, both the the government authorities and the international media and international commentariat, they are talking about the Indian decade, the Indian century. Those were not terms that were being used in 2004. There is a certain amount of almost giddiness about India. The, the word unprecedented is used perennially by uh, by both Indians and by the international media. So it just it happens to be a coincidence that you know the book is four years in writing. It comes out at a moment when this uh, is the environment. So the 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 headline here is that I believe that a this giddiness is completely misplaced. I have a piece out in Project Syndicate, I just noticed as I was walking in that they've just published it, where I say India's boom is a dangerous myth. So in itself, even the elite narrative in the, in the narrow, interpretable, quantitative economic sense is a jugglery of numbers. I call it bad, uh, wishful thinking clothed in bad economics. My thesis, on the contrary, is a 75-year-old history. And I call my book a history to inform the present. And the reason it is broken is one I've alluded to, but let me expand on it. That when social norms and accountability break down, they are the two sides, uh, on the two sides are economics and politics. On the economic side, what that means is there will be a perennial deficit in the provision of public goods. And public goods are the heart of an economic development process. We have this obsession with GDP growth, but we have to keep asking ourselves, what is the lived reality of people? Uh, do they have jobs? As you will remember, in January 2022, a bunch of applicants for the railways went on a rampage. Twelve and a half million people had applied for 35,000 jobs. For everyone who would eventually get a job, 350 would not. And the railways said, oops, sorry, we are not even ready to make those offers. There is The, the, the jobs crisis is there for everyone to see. It's it's just that, you know, the media looks at GDP growth and does not look at the jobs crisis. The, it is true that sometime in the 1990s, India was able to enroll every kid in primary school. Came well after the East Asians did. But let's give credit for that. But then look at the quality of education. The quality of education, depending on the metrics you use, Indian quality of education in terms of student performance according to their grade level, matches that of Kenya and Uganda. Whereas the other countries are soaring ahead of us. Vietnam 
and certainly Korea and Taiwan and so on. And, I, and the health is the similar problem. But, you know, talking about my father, which we were doing just before we came on, in my recent visit, when he, just before he passed away, one day in the car I said to him, Papa, the Indian judicial system is broken. And he turned to me and said, Oh, that's really interesting. Tell me more about it. And look at the long waiting times in prison. The, the backlog of cases has continued to expand. People spend more time in jail than they would if they were convicted of the crimes they were alleged to have committed. There is custodial torture to extract confessions. That's at the lower level. At the higher level, where the court makes judgments against corporate interests, the state does not enforce those on illegal sand mining, on the coverage of water bodies. And as we all know, the courts have been leaning in favor either by not pronouncing or by pronouncing in favor of the government. The environment is broken, not just the air quality where Indian cities compete with each other in being the most polluted in the world, but the rivers, the rivers are dying. When rivers die, civilizations die. You know, I could talk about rivers for the entire hour, but virtually every river in India today is dying. That is, that's on the economic side. This, why does this happen? On the politics side, when norms break down, politics becomes a business. It's not just the criminals that you so astutely and acutely focused on, but the money in, in politics has grown exponentially. As you know, in the 2019 general election in India, the total election spending was more than in the 2016 U.S. congressional and presidential election. What does that mean? That a typical politician will say to you, I need 10 crores to win this election. I need 20 crores to win the next one. So in the five years that I'm in office, here's how much I need to earn. I'm not making this up. This is, this is the regular calculus. So if, if that is the purpose for becoming a politician, then where is the role for public policy, for the public interest? We, we as economists will often say, oh, but we need to have better some fiscal policy or expenditure targeting or uh, better incentives in education. Frankly, that's all bullshit. Who cares about that? When, when the, the gross problems are so, so stark, so the, the erosion of norms and accountability result in poor economic outcomes, they result in poor political outcomes, and that becomes the the basis for calling the system broken. 
So, so let me just ask you uh, to elaborate on on the economy to, for starters. Uh, in the book you write, and I want to quote here, in making the lack of sufficient jobs the book's central thread, I depart from the convention of using GDP as the measure of an economy's success. My emphasis on the well-being of people leads me to focus on the availability of jobs and more broadly on human development. And, and, and you've already you know, spoken about these themes. Uh, now, you spent a lot of time at international financial institutions, and, and you know that GDP, of course, is the standard metric by which we on the outside measure a country's economic performance. And it's frankly how a lot of countries measure themselves, right? Now, if you use this standard and you say, okay, India has been a democracy for seven and a half decades, especially over the last 40 years, India has done remarkably well, right? So economists have said, you know, other than maybe Botswana, there's no other longstanding democracy that's managed to grow at a sustained high rate of growth for as long as India had. So, you know, uh, GDP may not be the be-all, end-all, but isn't it telling us something important about the evolution of an economy? It's absolutely telling us something important. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not telling us something important. I'm just saying it's not telling us the most important things that we need, that are important for human welfare. So, just let me let me uh, just on this last forty years that you talked about. This is not a question that that I've I was surprised that I'm the first person to notice the composition of this growth. The the most rapid growth during these last forty years, from about Rajiv Gandhi's time in nineteen eighty four eighty five to the present, has come from something called finance and real estate. Now, why why is finance and real estate important? Because finance and real estate is a relatively unregulated, where lots of people are making lots of money. It boosts your GDP, and what does it do for your for your jobs? So I show these charts of GDP and employment on my to my class, and a student asked me, "There's a lot. The finance and real estate is doing like gangbusters on GDP. Why don't I see it on the employment chart?" And I asked him. Why do you think that's the case? And he says, yeah, because it doesn't create jobs. You have a bunch of people sitting in Nariman Point generating gobs of GDP. What does it do for jobs? There are a handful of people from I'm Ahmedabad and I'm Bangalore and I'm Calcutta and such like places which are getting jobs. But we, are, we need jobs for seven to nine million people every year. And I don't know if you remember, you're probably too young to remember but some soon after the liberalization of 1991, in 1993, uh, Morgan Stanley set up an office in, in Bombay. And there was a flutter because a uh, one of their staff, a woman named Naina Lal, was given a crore of rupees a year. At, the time, at that time, it was about $300,000. It was an unthinkable amount in the Indian context. So that is counted as GDP. So if you if you earn those kinds of salaries, you get you get counted as GDP. 
but that's one person. And so that's the, that's the reason I say that the GDP does not count for me as economic welfare. Plus, you get, you get GDP when you set up a petrochemical plant. When you set up all these drug farmers and so on, hugely environmentally damaging, few jobs, the environmental damage is not counted as part of GDP. That is a trivially obvious point, one that's made often, but in the Indian context is hugely relevant for the reasons we just talked about a minute ago. If you're, if you're, the river Musi runs through Hyderabad, which is the pharma capital of, of uh, India. River Musi is dying because the pharmaceutical industry is dumping its affluence in the, into River Musi. Who is counting the cost of that in GDP? Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. At the core of your argument is, look, uh, the idea that India neglected two essential sources of economic development, right? Agriculture, number one, labor-intensive manufacturing, number two. And you say there was an alternate path, right? Uh, as you point out in your book, you said, look, if you want to achieve a high employment, high productivity economy, India should have pursued a development strategy more closely aligned to that of Japan after the Meiji Restoration, right, which was back in the 1860s. Now, my question to you is this. Were the conditions really ripe, given India's democracy, given its ethnic diversity, given its sprawling geography, given its poor state capacity, for a Japan-like strategy to have succeeded? Well, uh, you know, whether a heavy industrialization strategy could have succeeded is, an, is sort of a, another question. But look, the first plan, so the first plan document uh, is a remarkable document. The first plan is very close to a Japanese-style strategy. It, 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 in fact, uses some of the statistics from if, what at the time was a very famous paper on Japanese agriculture to say, look, here's what Japan has achieved in terms of raising agricultural productivity. And it has done so with relatively little investment. That was the key point about Japanese agricultural policy, that you did not need massive investment. You needed to do things better, just like Japanese have done later in their manufacturing. So the, there was a keen awareness. Nehru himself, you know, one of Nehru's great virtues is that he wrote everything that was on his mind. And in one of his letters to the then chief ministers, or I forget if this was before 1915, they were still called prime ministers, he says that Japan offers us the best way forward. Uh, 
while Soviet Union has many plus points, it's also very complicated, was the phrase or some equivalent phrase. So there was a clear mirroring of that view in the first plan. The first plan also talked about light industry. Leveraging of India's traditional capabilities in light industry. The entrepreneurship at that time was in cities like Coimbatore, Ludhiana. These are the towns that were in the nature of satellite towns around Osaka. And there was a the, the uh, hero uh, cycles. The precursors of hero cycles had already begun to gather in Ludhiana. So, yes, the, the nature of the countries is very different. The histories are very different. But the task was the same. Again, on Japanese education, the, the fascinating thing that I learned in writing the book is that when the Meijis come to power, the first thing they do is to send a 25-year-old young diplomat as their de facto ambassador to the United States with the with this single-minded purpose of learning about American education. Now, you might say America is so culturally different from Japan, but they brought back an advisor from the United States who lived in Japan for several years as the Japanese developed a primary education and then a secondary education system. This is a question I ask people just to tease them. How many universities did Japan have before 1920? Virtually none. There were probably a handful of universities. Japan first completed the task of educating its kids before investing in universities. And India did the opposite. And this was a comment made by educationists right from the start. You cannot have a top-heavy education system. As you rightly pointed out, I'm a beneficiary of that system. Not just me, but my wife. We both went to IITs. Our kids and you know, grown, uh, born and grown up in the United States tell their friends that my pa our parents are from the IITs because IIT is a brand name. So we are beneficiaries of that. But I ask the question, for, 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 for everyone like me who went to an IIT, how many kids did not get primary education? Primary education is so vitally important as the foundation for good economics, for good democracy, for civic consciousness. It's not a magic wand, but it is an essential prerequisite of a long-term development process. I just want to sort of pause at the economic present. Um, I want to ask you about India's economic model circa 2023, right? I find that both economists as well as political analysts have really struggled to concisely describe what the Modi economic model is to a layperson, right? So if you had to break it down, um, how would you explain 
what the Modi economic doctrine is. Uh, you know, with, with now with the benefit of, of hindsight, having seen him in office for the past near decade. Oh, it's very simple. Uh, heavily, heavy subsidization of corporate interests and no, uh, no first environmental clearances. Period. Full stop. Full stop. There, there's all the periphery about infrastructure and so on, but that, that's not the central element of the, of the policy. The central element of the policy is mollycoddling corporate interests. And, 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 and is that uh, uh, potentially a way to stimulate domestic manufacturing, right? If you, if you talk to people in government, they say, look, the whole point of having this, what they call PLIs, production-linked incentives, is to give subsidies to, country, uh, to companies, uh, both foreign and domestic, to make in India, um, and you know this is the way that India can 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 steal some market share uh, from say country uh, firms that are departing China, maybe looking for other alternatives. You know, India can be their sort of plan B. I mean, is, is this not a plausible path ahead? The only country in which people are talking about India being an alternative to China is India. I, I travel around the world and I never hear this anywhere else. The, we know, just empirically we know, that A, there has been relatively modest movement out of China. Gordon Hansen thinks that the Chinese will begin to move from their expensive coastal hubs to their interior where production costs are lower. The movement that, is, that has occurred has been substantially to Vietnam and to other Southeast Asian countries. Recall that these countries are members of something called RCEP. Comprehensive Economic Partnership, I believe. Yes, very good. And, and that is a preferential trade arrangement of which China is a part. India has notably pointedly stayed out of it. Why? Because Indian manufacturers lobbied against it because they fear that even the modest trade concessions that they give will make them uncompetitive uh, with the RCEP uh, producers. So, Correct. I mean, they were at the negotiating table until the 11th hour and then pulled out uh, with, with this justification. Exactly. And so the movement that is occurring out of China is moving is to the RCEP countries, primarily Vietnam, because they enjoy a preferential trade arrangement over there. A third movement that is occurring is American manufacturers doing something called nearshoring which is bringing production back to Mexico and Central America. There is this one, one uh, f fragment, which is some Apple contractors have begun manufacturing in India, and we are extrapolating from that into a, a Chinese movement out of, uh, a Chinese movement to India. The empirically, you do not see the movement in the numbers. Can it happen? Of course it can happen. But 
is it is the PLI going to be the vehicle? On that, all I can tell you is the recent assessment by Raghuram Rajan and uh, the former governor of the Reserve Bank and uh, a, co- a co-author of his. And he says that he's not able to see how the numbers are adding up. Uh, he's fearful that just like past subsidies, this will become another SOP to corporate interests uh, who would have either done that uh, business in any case uh, or will just use it to fatten their profits. Uh, Ashoka, I want to pivot before it's too late to talking about the issue of democratic backsliding. Uh, I know that you are aware that there are many analysts based in India who believe that the current democracy rankings that are issued by groups like VDEM, Freedom House, The Economist are flawed, if not outright biased against India, right? And, and, and one of the counter arguments that you hear from some critics is, look, India enjoys both regular elections, highly competitive, highly participatory elections, and regular peaceful transfers of power, including at the state level where the BJP often loses regional elections. Um, How would you respond to that, right? According to these metrics, democracy is alive and well. Right. So uh, right from the moment the Constitution was written, and I think it was B.R. Ambedkar who said this, that political equality does not mean anything without economic equality. And I think the sort of legal language over here is, um, is there, is there uh, one, uh, does one vote, one person, one vote have any meaning? So Robert Dahl very early on said that if corporate interests are going to be dominant in policy making, then the question of equality before the law is is becomes somewhat um, meaningless. So almost from the beginning of the post-independence period, India has lacked equality before the law. That is a fundamental characteristic of a good democracy, number one. Number two, Erosion of civil liberties began also relatively early. Number three, both these equality before law and and the constraints on civil liberties comes within a broader economic structure where, where corporate interests have become increasingly powerful, especially after the so-called liberalization. Therefore, it, to me, the notion that this is democracy in a sense that somebody like James Madison or Robert Dahl would have recognized, uh, it does not pass the smell test. The mere fact of elections and transfer of power is is a relatively weak test of a democracy. Democracy has to mean, if it means anything, that the people's voice is represented, that people have freedom of expression, that people have freedom of association, 
that the state does not use its coercive powers in an arbitrary manner. If, if none of these things work, then it's not clear why we insist on calling it a democracy. It's in that sense that democracy does not work in India for the betterment of the people. It does not reflect the voice of the people in terms of their material interests. Now, I am going to add very uh, before I, before you, quite uh, could very legitimately ask me. But yes, maybe people have other aspirations, like for example, you know, uh, the furtherance of a Hindutva agenda, maybe in the objective function of the voter, and to that extent, the voter is getting what he or she wants. Yes, that is probably true. But then what are we getting for that? We are getting that structure where corporate interests are financing elections. The vote gathering is based on a Hindutva process. That structure is being sustained by the coercive power of the state because that structure is is an inherently fragile structure and the coercive power of the state becomes essential to support that structure. Again, is that a democracy? Uh, I, I believe that it is, that calling it a democracy is not reasonable because it's not it's not delivering on the lived reality of people if if in fact the basic provision of jobs of public goods continues to languish and if the betterment of the people and the opportunities for the people continue to be constrained then I, I find it difficult to, to understand why we uh, insist on calling it a democracy. I mean, just one last example. Uh, air pollution, for example, has come down quite substantially in China. There is this uh, scholar at the University of Chicago, and I think his name is Michael Greenstone. And, uh, and he has documented a sharp decline in air pollution in China. Now, let me first, very before, before I go ahead, acknowledge that China has huge problems of its own, both in terms of its economics as well as in terms of its, uh, and more so in terms of its political structure. But it is also the case that the Chinese will often be more sensitive to the aspirations of their people uh, than the Indian, so-called Indian democratic state will be. There's a certain callousness in the, in the approach of the uh, Indian state, which again predates uh, the 2014 election. Uh, the 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 one example, and I know that we are now running short. The one example I'll, I'll leave you with is in two thousand and twelve. Uh, Nandini Sundar, who is a scholar uh, scholar at Delhi University, and others filed a case in the Supreme Court 
in which they said that the use of vigilante armies called Salva Judum in the states of uh, Chhattisgarh and Jharkhand was unconstitutional. And the 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 the, the poignant part of this was that the, those vigilante armies were state-supported in favor of corporate interests. The court agreed with them, and the state did not enforce that. They just they disbanded the Salva Judum in name and recreated the vigilante armies. So the, the state coercion was already a part of the system. The state coercion has now become an integral part of the system. And that, that to me is not a democracy. So, so Ashoka, just to sort of bring this to a close, thinking about the future, you know, you spend some time uh, talking about solutions, uh, and and rather than kind of getting into the weeds on specifics, you 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 talk about kind of broad principles, right? So, for instance, one of those is the idea that look, India needs more democracy through decentralization and devolution of authority to city and village governments, right? Uh, another one, and, and, and this is I want to ask you about, is about social capital and the need to build civic communities, right? And I think to many people who read this book and who may be familiar with the work of Robert Putnam and others on social capital, um, you know, this sounds great in theory, but I think they might struggle to understand what does this mean in practice, right? So if you think about this from a kind of implementation perspective, where does one start with the idea of trying to build or maybe rebuild civic communities uh, in India, which which could maybe then rebuild some of the social norms you believe have frayed over the past seventy five years? Yes, exactly. So I see I see civic communities, uh, even predating Robert Putnam, uh, uh, Alexei de Tocqueville. Uh, of course, uh, who wrote about it in such uh, such uh, vibrant form? They are the fulcrum. They are the the bedrock of democracy. They are the bedrock, not because of conventional sort of economic reasoning, but because that's where the social norms and accountability are built. That's where the citizen and the persons who govern the citizen are closest to each other, that's where the accountability can be strong, that's where the sense of civic purpose and hence social norms uh, improves. We see that in such systems, the delivery of public goods tends to improve. Where Where these communities fray, the public goods provision begins to decay. How does one implement this? I'm going to give you a a, a cheap answer that if we cannot do it, we don't have any hope because then we will continue to have a bad equilibrium of norms and accountability. The, The more sort of constructive answer is we do see glimpses of this in Kerala. And we see that decentralization imperfect though it is, fragile though it is, does create a voice for the people. It's the voice for the people that is the most important benchmark of democracy, where if 
there is environmental ravaging going on and communities rise up, then there is somebody who feels an obligation to listen. Today, when the Aravadis are being denuded, lots of Supreme Court judgments, nobody listens. Kerala is comes closest to putting the governed and the governed, uh, the, the governors and the governed close to each other, creating a system of norms, creating a system of accountability, delivery of public goods. Kerala is not perfect, but that does should not dissuade us from, from saying, here is what we can learn from there and try to replant it in different parts of the country. Now, people will say Kerala is also unique and therefore we, we cannot do what Kerala has done. And maybe we cannot. But then we have to ask ourselves, what is the alternative? Where, where do we start to... If my diagnosis is correct, that the heart of the problem is in the norms and accountability. The question has to be, where do we start? The reason I do not go into particular policies is that everybody knows what the right policy is. It's the, it's the, it's the implementation and the enforcement and the seeing through of policies that we have a problem in. And that requires this structure of consciousness, civic consciousness to grow. My guest on the show this week is the economist Ashoka Modi. He is the author of the brand new book, India is Broken, A People Betrayed, Independence to Today. It is a, a big book that tackles a very big question and offers a, a very clear and, and well-argued uh, a thesis about both India's political and economic travails. Ashoka, it's, it, it's been nice to see how well this book has been received. It's generated a lot of debate, which I suspect was one of the principal motivations for getting this out there. Um, thank you for writing it, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you very much, Bill, and thank you very much also just for the sensitivity with which you have conducted this conversation. Grant Basha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Nithya Lab. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Isabel Villegas is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com offer slash SiriusXM.